Well, good morning once again. You came on an awesome Sunday because uh, we are starting a brand new message series uh, titled this. It'll be up on the screen. Greatest Hits, Favorites from the Scriptures. Now, here's what I know. This is a really interesting question because rarely is the answer going to be objective where everybody's going to agree on it. But many times when you ask somebody, hey, like, if you could, like, create a Greatest Hits playlist for your life, like, what songs would be on that playlist? You ask, like, 100 people that, and you get 100 billion different a- answers and combinations, right? Um, just recently, uh, Lane Kendrick, one of our, our youth students, and I were in a car, and we were heading to Tulsa to help out with some of the um, flood relief uh, and helping with the Tulsa Dream Center. And we were like, hey, like, we just played this game with each other where it was like, hey, like, let's just start playing back and forth of, like, songs that have been some of the most influential songs for you, right? And it was so funny to, like, back and forth we went and played this game, and it was so interesting to hear the diversity of some of the most influential and some of our most favorite songs that are kind of included on our greatest hits. Like, I don't come before you this morning, like, assuming, like me, one of your favorite songs that influenced your life is Candy Rain by Soul For Real. Came out in the late 90s. Yeah. Exactly. Andrea's like the only one, right? Like, what in the world? Half of you are like, what? I've never even heard of that song. And you hear it, and you'd be like, why is that my, one of my pastor's most influential songs? It makes no sense. But everybody's is different, and I think it's so fascinating to think about that. But the same goes with Bible stories, right? And in this series, we're going to introduce many different voices, um, some people that have come up and preached before, and um, we're going to just come from the lens of preaching some of our favorites from the scriptures. And everybody's criteria looks a little bit different. I think for me, like, my criteria, and it probably looks a lot different than yours, my criteria is many times stories are parts of the Bible that were really extremely influential to the way that I think about the Bible as a whole. Really influential to my theology, my theological paradigm. Like, this is a big key moment that really affects all of the other moments. And here's what I know. Not everybody comes from that perspective. But this morning, um, I get to lead off this series this morning, so I'm bringing one of, the, one of the, the big stories that I think affects the rest of Scripture and has been a really influential for me, and this morning, that is the story of creation. We're going to look at Genesis 1-1 that's up on the screen. The beginning, right? Genesis 1-1 reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think uh, this is easy to think about why it's an immediate favorite from the Scripture, because If you're a person that's kind of serious or getting serious about your spirituality and your walk with God and and what that might look like, you you got to go to the beginning. (laughs) Because or else when you're questioning life, why am I here, what's my purpose, we're trying to find the genesis, the beginning of what is my purpose here on earth? How has God and his narrative set the stage for what my life might look like? What is this life that we're living How does God have a perspective in terms of where did we come from? What is this thing all about? So this is going to lead us into what we call the biblical creation account. The first two chapters of scripture. And we're not going to dive too deep into chapter 2. But I want us to read through uh, Genesis 1 this morning to kind of understand and and set the stage for what we're diving into. And then a couple couple scriptures um, in Genesis uh, chapter 2 as well. So let's let's read beginning with Genesis chapter 1. Uh, verse 1 on, and it's a lot, but just saturate yourself as we kind of read through these first couple chapters of Scripture. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, 
let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. Verse 8, God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs marks, signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from the darkness. And God, God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Verse 23 and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it that will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let's pray this morning. Lord, 
we just come before you with open hearts and open minds. And, and Lord, for some of us in the room, the creation account maybe seems kind of like a, a fairy tale. For some of us in the room, we have questions, we have thoughts. For others in the room, maybe this morning, we haven't connected to the dots of the implications of what this means for us to be humans flourishing in this life as created and purposed human beings in relationship with an almighty creative God. So, Lord, would, would you help us connect maybe some dots this morning? Would it help build a confidence in the purpose of who you've created us to be and what that means for the relationship that we have with you? We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, we said amen. So we're going to make a few observations about this chapter this morning that I think are really kind of impactful in terms of how we frame and understand um, how this sets the stage for the biblical narrative and the God of the Bible. And the first observation I want to make is that there are many different views of the creation narrative. So next up on the screen is we're going to look at the six primary views of creation. Because you may be a person that you're like, and, and this is where I get to, you know, selfishly kind of geek out. Because I like to live in these places with different viewpoints. Um, but for some in the room, maybe you always thought, well, there's only one. But I just want to open us up to other viewpoints of how people have chosen to interpret what we see in Genesis chapter 1, um, uh, focusing in on that chapter in particular. So we're going to look at, at 6, and here's the first one for you. And, and typically, you guys are going to, one of you, or all of you are going to relate to different ones and saying, oh, that's kind of where I land in terms of my viewpoint. View number one is this called historic creationism in terms of how this chapter is interpreted. A couple bullet points, a few for, for this viewpoint. Um, this viewpoint treats, treats Genesis 1-1 as a time frame that is undefined in the beginning. Well, we don't know how long the beginning and how long it took for God to create. So this viewpoint leaves this really open-handed of saying we don't know the amount of time Genesis 1-1 took because we are not God. We are not creators of the universe. So therefore, this viewpoint says, well, that time frame is undefined. This viewpoint says that the cultivated land and the creation of Adam and Eve was six literal 24-hour days. So this means that this viewpoint holds to the possibility of an old earth, which scientific observation has held being about 4.7 billion years old, right? An old earth, because that undefined time period in Genesis 1, with a younger humanity, right? Humanity showing up on the scene of creation later, a lot later, right? So that's, that's view number one. That's what we would describe as historic creationism. That's the lens that many times people use to interpret Genesis 1. Well, let's go on to the next one, which would be described as young earth creationism. Now, this one is a very, very literal viewpoint. Um, this is saying it, it, it's kind of uh, in com combatance with a lot of scientific observation. Because they're taking the time frames within the biblical narrative and they're saying, okay, if we add them all up, the universe is less than 10,000 years old if we take all of these numbers quite literally with no undefined times. Creation happened in six literal 24-hour days. And once again, like I alluded to, this is a viewpoint that has a very low view of scientific theories and observations. So uh, many times this, this camp goes to bat and goes uh, against a lot of scientists and a lot of observations that people have made throughout the years. Um, okay, now view number three. View number three is called the gap theory. Uh, another one of the most uh, popular views of the creation account. 
And this view basically says there was an undefined catastrophic disaster that happened between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So, like, a lot of people have a lot of questions about, like, what about dinosaurs? You know what I mean? Like, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? Right? It's like, well, unfortunately, the Bible wasn't written for the purpose of, like, a scientific textbook to help you understand dinosaurs. But it was written to us as a theological narrative to understand life and how we relate to the story of God, right? So, for the gap theory, this is one that, you know, if you want to, like, talk about dinosaurs, like this is one where people have used this as an as an identifier of there was this catastrophic catastrophic event that happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 where the earth existed but then it got obliterated and then God had to be basically start over right God responds to the state of the world in Genesis 1-2 by recreating and repopulating it thousands of years later in six literal days so in this view the earth is old billions of years old and then mankind is young, meaning more like thousands of years old. So this viewpoint holds to an old earth with a young humanity um, as well. Okay, a couple more. Next is what we would call uh, a few more. Number four is the literary framework view. Now, uh, the most succinct way I could describe this view is it's a it's, it's highly figurative view of the scripture in Genesis 1, um, which is right in line, honestly, with the poetic nature of how Genesis was written as well. So you look at the culture of uh, poetry in the in the time of uh, assumed where Genesis was written, and it was written in a very poetic nature that represented much of the culture during this time. So this isn't as far-fetched um, of a viewpoint that sometimes many people believe it to be. Uh, things are described in topical order, not sequential order. So according to this viewpoint, they view through the lens of like, it's less about like what order things happened in and more based on the different topics and the beauty and the diversity within God's creation. Um, this viewpoint says that the six days of creation are metaphorical rather than literal 24-hour days, right? So rather than this being a scale of time um, that's literal, they're saying this represents uh, more of a metaphorical kind of time period represented as how we define days. It's not the same way that we would define days currently as 24 literal hours, right? Okay, let's keep going. View number five is the day-age view. Is anybody confused yet? Yeah, come on, somebody. Here we go. Uh, view number five, the day-age view. The day-age view says God created the universe, including Adam and Eve, in six sequential periods of time that are the geological ages, and they're not literal 24-hour time periods. So this is a viewpoint that takes uh, the studies of geology throughout human history and the six major geological ages and uses that to define the ages in which God created in the creation narrative, which is pretty compelling when you think about it and know the, in the ways that those actually line up and kind of parallel as well. So that's the day-age view. And then view number six is, uh, lastly, theistic evolution. Um, theistic evolution says this. It says God begins creation but then allows the natural process of evolution to take place. So this view accepts much of the theories of evolutionary process. M once again, many times we think of the church like being in a fight with uh, the theories of evolution. Well, this viewpoint says actually uh, there's something beautiful about this that could have happened here where God is still the creator of matter, the creator of all things. He's behind it all, but he oversees as in his sovereignty the possibility of the evolutionary process on the earth. Um, so those, what's, what's amazing about this, those are the six major views, most popular views, and there are many, 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 many more. Meaning this, human beings way smarter than you and I have dedicated their lives to discovering and to studying this section of scripture. 
But here's, here's what I want our takeaway to be in terms of the divi- diversity of how uh, we interpret this piece of scripture. You can, repeat, you can hold to any of these views and still faithfully be a follower of Jesus. Let me say that again. You can hold to any of these views and still faithfully be a follower of Jesus. Let's just talk about healthy dialogue for a second. These things are fun to debate. They're fun to have types of dialogue where we challenge one another. But the moment this creates division between two human relationships where relationships are broken apart, we lose. We are not God. We are not the author of this. We in our human comprehension do not have this figured out. Hence why in our own human comprehension, limited comprehension, there are massive amounts of differences when it comes to how we interpret the creative narrative and that process which belongs solely to the responsible of an almighty creator, and that's it. Now, in the meantime, here's what we're doing in our human comprehension, limited comprehension, is we're always trying to knock at the door. And I I encourage you, keep knocking. Scratch the surface. Keep digging deep into who God is in his character and his majesty and his power. But I think the first implication for us as human beings is do not get and divide on things and die on hills in which we were never called to die on. Do not use this as an opportunity to create disagreement and disunity within your brothers and sisters who are also simultaneously using their brain to the best of their ability to hold to a specific viewpoint. We can be a people that model disagreement once again without being disrespectful. When we hit the mode of disrespect based on some of these disagreements, we as human beings lose because we're modeling something that the world's so good at naturally. And that's being in disunity. We are called to be people of peace. We are called to be those who harvest opportunity and model what it looks like to be into deep, authentic community with one another. Amen? Okay. That's the first thing. That's the foundation that I just wanted to set. Because I think sometimes if you don't set that type of a foundation, there's a lot of assumptions running around. So my assumption is, and you might be saying, well, pastor, what's your view? That's not my, that's not my place to give you my view. I have a view. I'll just be honest. I die on one of those hills, and I have reasons why. But my job isn't to convince you of that. My job is to help you think and come to your own conclusions. Because pastor is not going to be there when somebody comes knocking on your door asking you what you believe about creation and science. You have to have come there. See, this requires you to read the Bible. You to come to your conclusion. You to. And, and, and here's where I tried to help you. Is Those are the top six ways that we think about it. But I don't feel like my job is to tell you specifically the way that I think about it. Because here's what I know. My viewpoint has errors in it and is imperfect. And that's okay. Amen? Okay, let's continue on. Second observation uh, is a big, a big portion of this scripture, which is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei. Now, some of you in the room are like, what in the world is Imago Dei? This is the Latin term many times used to describe this idea of the image of God, which is a phrase that was used in, that, in Genesis 1, right? We saw that phrase pop up. So let's, let's look back at Genesis 1 really quickly, which I think, once again, this is, has massive implications in terms of how we live as human beings, right? So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 says, Then God said, 
So after everything else has been created up to this point, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. See, this is so massive because at the genesis, at the beginning of God's creative viewpoint, each person fundamentally has value as his image bearers. See, if, we, if, we, if you're like this morning, you're like, okay, this is a fairy tale, like I, I don't believe any of this, great. You're, you're not going to jive with what, what we're deeming as truth this morning because at the very beginning, according to God's heart, deeming of what he deems as truth when it comes to creation is that each and every human being, at their inception, at their birth, as being living, breathing human beings on this earth, are created in God's very beautiful, distinct, holy image. For culturally, expressions during this time period in which Genesis was written, people would describe it in such terms as this, is that every human being carries God's essence. The image of God was used during this time as Genesis was written to describe the idea that as human beings we are created with God's essence. God's thumbprint upon each and every one of us and this is profound. This impacts a lot. Because let's think about this for a second. Many times it's fun to think about the Bible systematically. What do I mean by that? Taking a bunch of topics and like lumping them all together of like, okay, let's find every instance in the Bible where God talks about holiness. Okay, that's us systematically thinking about the Bible and the topic of holiness. But I want us to, to, to zoom back because there's a beautiful narrative that's happening right here. This is the beginning, meaning this is the starting point, entry point of God's beautiful love story and revealing of himself of how he relates to other human beings. Rather than us thinking about this of like every place in the Bible, let's treat this as the beginning. Let's treat this as a narrative story in which God was knocking out some foundational things in terms of the stage he was setting for us to understand our purpose within God's scope of humanity in the history of the world, right? This is the introduction to the story. And it reminds us that you matter to God. You. You and your uniqueness. You have purpose. You were born for a reason. You were born in this time frame, at this moment in time, in this generation, for a specific purpose and for a specific reason. And if you matter to God, here's what we need to also remember about the brothers and sisters, not only sitting on our left and right, but those outside the walls of this place, is they matter to God as well. They matter a whole lot to God. In the same way that God dotes on you and has created you in his very essence, he has done the same for those who are like, I'm not a church person, or like, I'm a, I'm a big heathen, or I'm whatever that looks like. Every scale, it doesn't matter because God chose to create humanity in his very image. This is one of my favorites in the scripture because it's foundational. 
It's foundational about how we think about God and how we think about human beings. This helps set the stage for everything else in which God's heart is being revealed to a humanity in which he loves so much. So much and it reminds us in our personal pursuit of God. Because as, as, as the people of God, maybe as people, as church people, speaking to an audience of church people this morning, there's a dynamic within you. There, there's, there's some sort of a pursuit of God, whether that's kind of more of a passive curiosity this morning, whatever the narrative looks like. But this reminds us in our passionate pursuit of God, we do not have permission to step on other human beings on the way up in our pursuit. See, this is the problem is you could be like, well, I'm so all about God, but in the meantime, I'm just kind of stomping and stepping on other people in my own pursuit of God. And, and right here in the early chapters, the first chapter of the Bible, we're reminded that's not possible because those people matter too. Yes, it matters, the connection point that you personally have, but in your pursuit from that point forward, it's not all about you. And you have no right to devalue anyone else in your pursuit of God in the process. See, God starts and builds a foundational narrative for us to understand and interpret his heart from the very few first few pages of scripture this is so massive we aren't given the right to devalue anyone else also created in his image some of you in the room though are going okay pastor but you need to keep reading and i agree because for those of you familiar with the biblical narrative you know what's coming Chapter 3 of Genesis is coming. And chapter 3, we're not dipping into it too much this morning. But there's massive implications because chapter 3 represents where human beings, we screwed this thing up. We proved that we couldn't be obedient to the, the, the regulations that God, let me say this, the gracious boundaries that God had created for us to live and to thrive in. And in our free will, we chose to breach those. And, and in comes this curse of sin and evil into our world that many times throughout our life we're constantly struggling with. See, sin enters the world, and what happens to the image of God, the reflection of us as human beings? Well, that image gets cracked. gets pretty messed up. See, and for some of us in the room, we're going, you're living in la-la land, understanding, Pastor, that, see, the world we live in is a broken one. The world we live in is as human beings like you and I, we all have cracks. We all have areas of our life where God's mending those places back together. So it really kind of leads us to our last and final observation about this section of Scripture this morning, which is a question that's going to be up on the screen is, what is God's vision for fallen human beings? Because the beautiful, perfect creation narrative takes a pretty sharp turn when we get to Genesis chapter 3. And once again, if we're thinking about the Bible as a story, we know the majority of the Bible isn't reflective of the state of 1 and 2, the first two chapters, but it's more of a commentary and relationship with God and human beings about dealing with our own brokenness, our imperfections, the fact that you and I fall short of God's glorious standards. But here's what I love about the heart of God and his vision for us. In that very chapter, Genesis chapter 3, where the curse of sin enters into the human narrative, we have verses 14 through 15. And they'll be up on the screen. It gives us a viewpoint. 
of God's vision. He says this to the snake who was the tempter that compromised misinformation about God, his character, and caused this falling short to occur and to begin to manifest throughout the human narrative. He says this, he says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, in which in other parts of the Bible, that ancient devil, making reference to the enemy of our souls, the personal godlike being that wants nothing more than for us to fail to lose our purpose in connection with God in this, this lifetime. He says this, he gives the serpent his fate. So because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, there's something beautiful about this because it represents the relationship between human beings and animals in a sense too. That there are certain creatures like I was uh, in our basement, I think it was yesterday, and I saw a spider. Anybody else, like you see a spider and you're like, wow! Ah, you know what I mean? And you don't want to mess with spiders because you know spiders could possibly bite or sting you, right? See, there's this relationship because of sin, because of between human beings and creatures, right? Where there's a, there's, there's a tension there. But we know, hey, I got the big hand. I got the paper towel. I could smash you, spider. But you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. You get a bite. Sometimes so serious that it takes someone's life. See, there's this tension and there's this prophetic vision that God's giving forth about this tension that's going to exist within this world where sin has entered. But there's something so beautiful about a prophetic vision that's being spoken out towards humanity. You see, through the path of childbearing, there will be this son smack dab in the middle of human history that will be born and he will be the king to settle this once for all. Yes, when he's up on that cross, come on somebody. The serpent thinks that he's winning in the way that he's striking Jesus who came in the midst of human history. But we know based on the resurrection of Jesus that the serpent's head is crushed in Jesus' name. From the beginning of even Genesis chapter 3, we see prophetic utterances that give us a vision of God's plan rolling into motion that he has for human history to deal with the brokenness that you and I have as shattered image bearers of him that don't always do the best job of reflecting his essence to the world. He's healing us. He's putting us back together and despite the image of God being partially partially lost because of sin entering into the world each person still has hope still has purpose still carries God's essence each person fundamentally still has value regardless of class race gender or disability because they carry the essence of creator God. This sets the tone of our attitude hundreds if not thousands and billions of years before Jesus' church comes to the earth. God's heart is one that says we do not have the right to be exclusive and carry 
an attitude of disdain towards those created in his image. See, the heir, as we see, is not God's vision for human beings. His vision is a good one. His, his vision is a solution-oriented one. His is like, okay, sin has entered the world. Well, let me roll out a plan that's going to deal with this once for all. And rather than it being the burden that humans have to carry, he's like, I'm going to carry this burden in my camp, in my very nature, in my character as father, son, spirit. I'm going to send my son in the middle of human history to take care of this brokenness once for all. And in the meantime, I'm going to be in relationship with these imperfect people. But I'm going to give them vision. I'm going to give them hope. And I'm going to remind them of their purpose and the image in which they were created. The error is not in God's vision of how he sees people. It's in our vision of how we see people. See, God constantly has a plan that sees people in light of Genesis chapter 1. The tension for you and I is to look at another be human being and not see them through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. Not see another human being for their brokenness. Not seeing another human being for the ways that they fall short. Not seeing another human being for their imperfections. But the challenge is our vision getting aligned with God's vision and aligning our eyesight towards other human beings to have his Genesis 1 vision of saying, I see you there. I see beyond the brokenness. I see beyond the shatteredness. And I see that God is in you. And if God is in you, we are going to do what we can to pour fuel on that fire of God's image within you so it will thrive, so that his light will shine even through the brokenness as brightly as possible. See, we're not even talking about the church and Jesus' church. We're talking about the nature of the creation narrative in the first couple chapters of the Bible. And what's so beautiful about it is for those of us that are familiar with the heart of God, namely through his son Jesus, we're going, those hearts are synonymous. The heart of Jesus shows up right there in the creative narrative of God and his posture towards humanity. How do you see people? Do you see people with a kingdom lens? Do you see people for their potential and who they are in the carrying of an essence of his very image? See, that's a massive implication for the posture that we take in our lives moving forward. But it's beautiful because it comes from this place that gives us based on this chapter, so many implications about the God of the universe. Just within the first several verses in chapter, in a few verses, we're let into understanding the implications, not only about us and our posture towards other humans, but the implications of who is this God who chose to be creator, and what is my relationship and posture supposed to be towards this God? Who are you God? And I love these first couple chapters of the Bible because they help us see and understand that so clearly. In those first couple chapters, we understand that he is the only God. There's one creator in, in this narrative. Sole creator. He is a community of three persons, Father, Son, 
in spirit. I love the echoes of what later on in the scripture is revealed more explicitly, this plurality, us, in our image of Father, Son, Spirit, this community represented in God's very nature, independent, one God, yet three persons existing through the model of community in which he encourages us as human beings to live as well, not on our own. He is eternally uncaused. You see, God existed before creation. He exists eternally. See, he, he is living. He's the creator of life. And in his very nature, he is a living God. And the first chapters of Genesis, we understand that he's independent. Once again, he doesn't depend on anyone else in his sufficiency. He's completely and utterly sufficient. He is transcendent, meaning this, that God is separate as creator from his creation. We, we aren't equal with God. There's transcendence, but he is also at the same time imminent, meaning that although he's separate, he is at work within us and in relationship with us. So profound. He is personal. He made mankind in a personal way. And he's not an impersonal it, but rather a he with personality and personhood. He's powerful. He made everything from nothing. Wow. He is beautiful. Come on, he chose trees over air filtration machines in which he had the power to do it. He chose color over black and white. He is holy meaning he is without sin, and he created us holy until human sin marred us. He's a prophet. He spoke, and he brought creation forth. He is a sovereign king. He is in charge, and all creation will give an account before him someday. See, this is the nature of the very God of the biblical narrative revealed within the first couple chapters and then in the biblical narrative more explicitly revealed and nuanced and shown and consistent with his very heart that shows up in the first pages of the Bible. This God and this God's presence is the motivation for hope for more of us on this earth. This God and his character and his nature has implications in terms of the way that we relate to him as a God who cherishes in his children and has created us with such plain purpose and dignity to thrive in as we live our lives on this earth. And once again, talking vision, it would be wrong to kind of sneak ahead into the biblical narrative and see where he's leading us to. Amen? So we're going to finish off. We started at the beginning of the scripture, and we're going to end near the end in one of the last chapters of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, here's where he is leading us. It says this in Revelation 21, verse 1. This massive vision that's revealed to the apostle John as he's been exiled into the early church times in the island of Patmos. This guy... The Apostle John, when he received this vision from God, you got to understand, this dude, they kept trying to kill him, and he wouldn't die. 
Guys, they, they, tried to, they tried to boil him in a vat of oil, and he survived it. I don't know about you, I'd be so mad at God for surviving that one. And the implications physically. But it just reminds us that God still had a purpose, even in his charred physical state, in which God was still allowing him, through his grace, to give him breath. On this island where it just seemed like there was no hope left, no way for him to have an impact on the early church and the, and the thrust of the church moving forward, what does God do? He powerfully reveals this vision of revelation to the apostle John, and here's where it begins to resolve in Revelation chapter 21. John describes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, in God's vision, he's leading us to a place where your temporary suffering is going to culminate where God's ultimate justice is going to reign true. You can be a person that says, well, you know, our DNA just kind of magically dances with one another. But how does that give hope and good news to the, the woman who's been a part of human trafficking and had to endure suffering? The DNA is just dancing together. See, our God is a God of justice, that his justice and his good news reigns true, and it gives hope to those encountering utter evil in current circumstances. That doesn't bring together purpose in life just by happenstance. But God in his ultimate justice and love is moving us as humanity forward where his justice will reign true. But he will remove every suffering to a place of ultimate hope and glory. Much like the Garden of Eden in which he began his creative narrative. A new heavens and a new earth is culminating to where he's bringing us to. And it's beautiful. But here's, here's for us. In, in the middle of, of, of brokenness in the beginning and in, in the end, something happened smack dab in the middle of human history. And his name is Jesus. And to deal with this tension between the now and the not yet, he gives us grace in the midst of his tension to partner with him as his church in his resurrection power to be his church, to help remind people who they are created in his very image. We are called to be the people that dig down deep into people, other people's lives and remind them that they are God's, that they have been created with dignity and respect, and they have been created to live a life of abundance according to God's essence and the vision that God has for our lives as human beings. Amen. Let's pray together this morning.